I regularly um, pray for my children. I pray for them every day, uh, oftentimes. Uh, it's like my son's sitting there and I think about praying for him. All of a sudden, I'm like, Whoa. I pray that they would show the world what God is like. Uh, Quinn and I pray that together every night. That when he goes to school, that people would see what God's like by the way he treats them. And I pray that very specifically for them and with them and, and have for years, simply because I think this, this idea of what God calls us to is to, to glorify God and enjoy him forever and to walk closely with him. And so when I pray that people would see what God is like by the way they treat him and the way they operate, and the way they talk and the way they move in the world, what I'm praying is that they would glorify God in their lives. And I pray that because I believe that it's the very heart of what God has made us to be and wants us to be. And so when I think about it in those terms, when I pray that for my children and I pray that with my children, I'm praying for their best. And I think of it as almost like a, a frontline prayer of such importance that they would see that God is greater than anything else, that they would know that, that they would operate out of that truth. And I think of it as like, when I say frontline prayer, really important, kind of on the front lines of the battle of the world, because what's happening in the world is the world's telling them so many other things, so many lies that are not true, that are the opposite of what God would have for them. And so I think about praying for them daily, that all the things that they're bombarded with from every side, what the world is telling them is the good life, what will make them happy what will bring them security and joy in their life. And oftentimes it's not what God says at all. And so when I'm praying those things for them, I think of it as such an important prayer for my children. And so we pray that regularly and I pray that with my kids and I pray that for them. And I was thinking about just praying for them and them kind of going out in the world as we started Daniel last week. And just what we see of Daniel going into this place, Babylon, this great city of the time. And if you were with us last week, we kind of traced the whole idea of Babylon, right? It starts way back in Genesis 11, and we see it all the way through the Bible. And God is calling his people out of Babylon, the literal place. But also it takes on a much greater meaning in the Bible. It really has to do with uh, kind of any place, any city, any uh, government or nation that rises up that demands allegiance over God that, that would say what we see at the very beginning in Genesis 3 that we talked about last week, the serpent that comes and tempts us and says, you don't need God. You can do this on your own. And so what we're seeing in Babylon, not just the city and the actual place, but even the idea that we see repeated throughout scripture is exactly that, that we're being tempted with, you don't need God and calling us out to give our allegiance to something else. And so we're seeing that all the way through scripture and God is warning his people over and over to be called out of Babylon, right? This idolatrous idea that you don't need God, that we as people are enough and we can figure it out and it's all about us. And we're called out of that over and over. And we see it in a whole bunch of different ways throughout the Old Testament. And as God continues to call his people out, he continues to warn us that there'll be, it'll be detrimental if we embrace that idea. If we decide to go to what the world says rather than what God has called us to. And so what we see all the way through Israel's history is God warns them and he calls them and he loves them and he pursues them. And he continues to send prophets to speak the truth and to remind them of who they are and who they're called to be. 
But what happens when we get to this point where we are in the book of Daniel is in 600 BC, God allows Babylon, the actual city of Babylon, this nation to rise up and basically swallow up Israel. And they're taken off to be now in Babylon. And so today I want us just to think about what it looks like. And this is what we talked about last week is this, that what's happening here in Babylon is kind of what the culture we live in. We live in a Babylon of sorts today. There's a whole lot of things that our culture is calling us to that are opposed to what God says. And so how do we live faithfully in the middle of that? So as we look at this first chapter, that's what we're going to think about this morning. How do we live faithfully in a culture that is against what God says? And there's very real danger if we're not aware of the the call of what's going on in our world, if we don't see it. It's kind of like the, the old thing about the, the frog that's in the pot with the boiling water, if you've ever heard that before. You put the frog in, in the water, and you slowly turn up the temperature, and it just keeps getting used and acclimating to it, and it never knows, and then all of a sudden it's dead. That's kind of what we're in in a lot of ways in our culture. There are so many things that are pulling us from what God says, and if we're not seeing them and we're not aware, we're kind of like the, the frog in the pot. And so today as we think about how to live faithfully in a a world that is so opposed to God, we're going to look at Daniel and we're going to see some things here that help us with that. But it's also what we need to hear because we're dealing with the same things today in so many ways. And so as we think about it, this is the way I want us to think about it. First, I want us just to kind of shine a light on the dangers of living in the world today or in Babylon, right? And so being aware of the pull and the things that are there. If we're not aware, if we're oblivious to them, then we're in danger. So we need to shine a light on them. Secondly, I want us to think about as we see that and we go, well, we want to live faithfully. There's a couple of things that I think are errors that we tend to. We go, I'm going to live faithfully, so I'm going to do this. And we end up doing things that are not what God calls us to. And so I want us to consider some of the errors that we run to in hopes of being faithful. But then lastly, we'll look at what it tells us here, what Daniel tells us, and actually the prophet Jeremiah about how we are called to live faithfully in the midst of a world like we live in today. And so let's just start with some of the the uh, dangers that are there if we don't see them. And really what we, the way I think about it when we start, start to thinking about the dangers that are so subtle is, is just being assimilated, being kind of swept away with the culture that is around us. And if you study history and you look at what nations did with the Chaldeans, synonymously used with Babylonians, same people, what they would do is they would go in and they would conquer nations. They wouldn't just go in and take over. They would do that. They took over Jerusalem. They took the city. They end up burning it down, destroying it, doing all kinds of horrible things. But they don't just do that. They don't just stop there. What I just read to you from Daniel chapter 1, they take the very best and brightest out and they take them back to Babylon. And so the way in which they conquer their, their enemies and the people around them is not just uh, overtaking the place, but there's something much more than that. The ultimate humiliation of their enemies is to then take the very best and brightest back into Babylon and indoctrinate them into their society, to change their culture, to swallow them up to where they don't exist anymore and make them look like Babylon. And so that's what they did. And that's what it tells us they did here. It says in verse 3 that the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. 
Then he assigns them food to eat, things they're going to do, gives them new names. He renames each one of them. And so you start to see this kind of indoctrination process that they would do in Babylon, the way that they operated. They would bring the best and brightest in. They would isolate them from their family and friends. They would pull them out of this. It says the youths that are the best. We think around this time that Daniel is about 15 years old. And so he's taken out of his home and away from his family and all these things. And he's taken to this foreign land and he's put in this program. And he's isolated. And then they start to indoctrinate him and teach him uh, kind of worldview and history and language and all the things of where he now is. Start to indoctrinate him in that. They then begin to uh, compromise or challenge their beliefs. And they do that with the food that they eat here. If you know about the history of Israel in the Old Testament, God calls his people out and he takes them and he sets them up and he says, you're going to be holy and set apart to me. And he gives them all these laws and all these ways of operating and the way to go to the temple and the way to worship God and the way to come before him. And part of that is these cleanliness laws that they're going to eat in certain ways and they're going to dress in certain ways. And all of it was to be set apart to show a different way of operating. And so it was very important what they ate and the way that they operated. And so when Daniel and his friends are taken out of Israel and brought into Babylon, and they said, you're now going to eat the king's food and you're going to drink his wine and you're going to do all these things. This is a huge compromise that they're being faced with. And so they isolate them. They begin to indoctrinate them. They then present things that are a compromise to what they believe, which even if you stop and think about it, the hard part here is probably pretty appealing says they're going to give them the same food that the king ate and the same wine that the king drank. It's probably pretty good. And so it's, it's not only calling them to do something that goes against what they believe, but it's also presented in a way that's real appealing. And then the last part of that and, and all of that is they, they bring them out in these compromise. They then give them new names, give them a new identity. They rename them with names that kind of fit with the society they're now in. And so they're starting to try to remake them in the image of Babylon as, as Babylonians, as Chaldeans. And so as I was thinking about just what's happening here, uh, we talked about this last week. We follow this all the way through the Bible. This is not just the world operating as the world. There's a spiritual battle going on. There's a real thing happening where the forces of evil, Satan and demons and the dominion that they are seeking to, to grab control and take it away from God, they're trying to lead us to something away from God. And that's exactly what's happening here. There's, there's spiritual battles going on underneath all of this. And so you have this, this setup of that's what's happening to Daniel and his friends. And, and when I read that and I think about it, it's the same things that's happening around us today. The book of Daniel is so relevant to where we are today and what we're dealing with. If you've been at Church of the Apostles for any length of time, I've said this for years and I'll continue to say this. There's, we, our main goal here is discipleship. We want to grow in obedience to Jesus in every area of our life. We want to make disciples that make disciples. I think that's the mission that Jesus gave us. And so one of the things I regularly say when we talk about that is there's no neutral in discipleship. Our world, we are surrounded by things that are pulling us away from what God says. And if we just kind of go lay back and I'm just going to float and it's not a big deal and I'm just going to kind of float along with it, you're going to be discipled by the culture. There's no neutral. And it's the same thing that's happening here. They bring these guys in and they're going to bombard them with all these ideas and all these things to remake them in the image of Babylon. The same thing is happening with us all around us today. 
The same thing's happening with our children or your grandchildren. They're being bombarded with messages constantly in every way at every moment. It's actually really scary if you've ever stopped and looked or read anything about the algorithms that are used with social media. How they target your very everything that you do, every move that you make online. Anything that you look at, you now get targeted with ads and all sorts of things that come at you that are very specific to the things that you like and don't like. And it's everywhere. It's not just the ads that you read, but it's the the curriculum in the schools some of the things that we're being taught regularly that we're seeking to teach our kids in our society. You see it in, in video games or the videos on YouTube. or th- Every single thing is coming at you in different ways, seeking to pull you away from what God says is most important. It's presenting you with another uh, uh, vision of what is the good life everywhere that we turn. And so although it doesn't look just like the king's program in Babylon today, we're getting it in different ways at at every turn. And so as I was just thinking about that and how much that comes at us, kind of like with the king's food here, it's enticing, right? Like like as I say that about uh, videos and and social media and all those things, uh, you talk to high school student or middle school, they go, what's the big deal? Everybody's on social. Everybody's got it. Everybody's in that. What's the big deal? And it's so easy for us to kind of get caught up into that. But the big deal is our heart is deceptive. That we're sinful. That we want to exchange the ultimate things that God calls us to for other things. Our heart is an idol factory that wants to cling to all these other things at every moment. And when you're inundated with it, at every turn, it becomes more and more difficult to stand firm to what God calls you to. And so I was thinking about just the importance of that in so many ways. And I'm thankful today, uh, this, this Sunday, our, our middle school and high school students are in here. And I'm glad you guys are in here with us and we worship. We do that every other week. They go downstairs and they're being discipled and learning and growing And then the other two weeks, they're in here with us, worshiping with us. And that's deliberate. We want them to be part of our worship. But as I was thinking about our high school and middle school students, I want to speak directly to you for just a second. There's so many lies that are coming at you at every turn, over and over and over again. And there's two in particular that I want to just kind of shine a light on, that we see them. And the first one is that you're going to hear this for the rest of your life. You're going to go off to college, you're going to go into school, and you're going to hear over and over and over again that you are a random accident, that there's not a creator, that you just arrived here, that over time, through a bunch of billions of years, random things that came together and you just arrived. That is a lie from the pit of hell. You were created by God, you were made in his image, and he loves you dearly. He has a plan for your life. He has uniquely gifted you to love the people around you, and he has something so far greater than what the world tells you. That is not true. God loves you, and he knows you, and he knows everything about you. The second one 
is that the world is going to tell you that your feelings are supreme. How you feel about the things that are in front of you is what is true. And that you should trust your feelings and that real truth is being true to your feelings in the moment. And the world's going to tell you over and over that that's where your greatest joy is going to be found. That's where your greatest freedom is going to be found. And that too is a lie. The sinfulness of our hearts, our emotions betray us. We take good things that God's given and in our emotions, we elevate them to ultimate things. That's making it an idol and it will betray you because what will happen is in your feelings, you go, this will bring me ultimate joy. No, it won't. God alone will bring you ultimate joy. Trusting God alone will bring you ultimate freedom. Your feelings will betray you. And so when you stop and you look at what God says and what he tells you, and I know you're hearing this in our middle school and our high school, you just did this, right? God is glorious, which when we say we want to hold to that God is glorious, we care more what God thinks than what people thinks. We care more what God says than what I feel in the moment. Because God is your creator and he knows everything about you and he knows every bit about the way you were made and what is best for you. He knows more than you know even about yourself. And so you trust that God knows more than you know. And so if you don't hear anything else, if you're going to zone out for the rest of the time, you're going to be looking at your watch and thinking about what's for lunch. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. That what God reveals to you in his word, let that stand over your feelings for that is the beginning of wisdom. That you let what God says and what his word has says stand over how you feel in the moment. That is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And the world's going to tell you the exact opposite at every turn. But the truth is, it's not just our children and social media. It's us, all of us. As adults, it's what we listen to, it's what we consume, it's coming at us at every angle. I said this a lot the last year, and I think this is true. I think if you consume what the world is is, is feeding you, whatever outlet that is, I often use uh, the news as the uh, example. But if you are sitting and consuming the news, whatever the source is, it's not a comment on any particular organization. It doesn't matter which one. But if you're letting your worldview be shaped what the news is telling you, you are being indoctrinated to see the world not in the way that God sees it. You're being indoctrinated to hate people who you disagree with. You're being indoctrinated to not see them as made in God's image. You're being indoctrinated to believe that political parties are the answers to the problems of the world. That's not true. The problems of the world ultimately come back to our sinfulness and the answer is ultimately Jesus. And there's no news organization that's saying that. And so I would just challenge you as you think about being assimilated, being kind of swallowed up in Babylon, being swallowed up by the world. If you're spending more time consuming news, the things that are coming at you than you are in God's word, you're going to have a hard time having a biblical worldview. We will get swallowed up in it. 
And it's true for all of us, not just our children, but every single one of us. There's a severe danger of being assimilated by all these sources. And I'll give you one last part as we think about just seeing this for what it is. Because it was so prevalent in the last year. You take all of these things and what the world is throwing at you and coming at you. You see the same thing kind of happening here in Daniel. They're, they're uh, indoctrinating and they're telling these all these things. But what did they do? They isolated them. They took them out and they brought them to Babylon, away from their family, away from all the people who think like them. They begin to indoctrinate them. It's kind of like if you take the fuel, uh, the, the fire's raging here, that it's kind of seeking to consume us, what the world is saying, and then you add to it isolation. It's like pouring fuel on the fire. Because what happens is God has called us into a family of faith. We're to encourage one another. We're to speak the truth to each other. We're to walk together. We're to work these things out. All the one another passages. And we remove that peace and suddenly it's been accelerated. We retreat and we isolate and we go in our own home and we let all these things come at us and it becomes an echo chamber in our own house. And we're not speaking the truth to each other. And we're not walking the way together in the way God has called us. And so it's so important that we recognize that all of these lead to this assimilation. Being overwhelmed with what the world says. So what do we do? What do we do to combat this? If this is everywhere and we're inundated with it, what do we do to remain faithful in the midst of it? And the first thing I want us to consider is a couple ways I think we get it wrong. I think they're good impulses. I think they have part of the truth in it, but we get it wrong. And the first one, I'd say the way that we get it wrong is we go, well, the world is evil. And it's a scary out there and things are bad. So we're going to build big high walls and we're going to keep the world out. And I'm only going to uh, uh, spend time with other believers. I'm going to shrink my circle and only the people that think just like I think. And I'm going to spend time with only them. It's what I call the holy huddle. We're going to get those people together and we're going to keep the bad out. The problem with that is this idea will just kind of weather the storm. We'll kind of run the clock out. Jesus is going to come back or we're going to die and either way it'll be good. And so we'll just kind of wait, right? Basketball analogy, you go to four corners and you stall. We'll just wait. We'll keep the bad out. The problem with that is Jesus, what Jesus has called us to. And who he is and what he tells us it looks like to follow him and what he says when he prays for us and what he tells us we're sent to do. Jesus never, ever says, "Okay, now go out and find some other believers and hide out and I'll be back for you. He says, go make disciples of all nations. Go proclaim the good news to every part of the earth. You go and you tell people what I'm like and you go out. And you continue to pursue. Just think about the way Jesus prays for us in John chapter 17. We've looked at this a couple times through the last year, two years. John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus praying for his disciples right before he goes to the cross. And he says a little bit later in that prayer, and I'm also praying for those that would come to faith through your witness. So what he's doing is he's praying for the church. He's praying for the believers. But listen to what he says. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. 
As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. What does he say? He says, God, protect them. Let them see the truth. Let them hold fast to God's word. As I send them out into the world, don't take them out of the world. They're going to be my witnesses. And Jesus prays that we'd go and be salt and light, that we would show people what God is like. So I pray that for my kids every day, that they would go and show the world what God is like, that we would love people in the way that Jesus has loved us and that we're sent in that way. And so when we think about the idea of a holy huddle, I I do want to preface this with this. If you have the inclination with your kids to protect them and to to guard them and, and to see the things that are coming at them, yes, 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 do that. Don't just give them free reign and don't worry about it and that's okay. Almost. No, protect them. Talk to them about what they're hearing and what they're seeing and have those conversations. Spend time with other believers. Let them see what it's like to be part of God's family and his church. But then don't say that's it. Then take your kids and go on mission and show the world what God is like and love your neighbors and spend time with the people around you. And so it gets part of it right when we say that. But if we stop there, we miss greatly. But then the second way I would say that we miss it is not just the holy huddle, but when we get in this idea of it's us versus them, whoever them is, however you define that. It's us versus them, and we're in the middle of this war, and we're in Babylon, and those are the bad people, and we're the good people, and so let's go get them. And it turns into this kind of like war thing. And I felt this tension last week talking about the idea of Babylon throughout the Bible. And saying we've got to be careful, we are now in Babylon. Everybody's like, oh yeah, we are in Babylon. And then all of a sudden it becomes like this fearful thing. We're in Babylon, and they're the bad ones, and oh no... Jesus rules and reigns over every square inch of the cosmos, all of it. There's nowhere that we go that he's not ruling and reigning. It is not us versus them. It is us going to show people what God is like, just as Jesus has come for us. And so when we make it us versus them and it becomes like everything is we're at war with the people around us, we've missed the calling that God has has for us. That's not what we're called to. We're called to be faithful to him and to love him and to show people what he's like in all things. It's not go to war with the people around us. It's not retreat and hunker down and not ever go outside and keep it here. It's not to be assimilated. So what does it look like? What does it tell us here? And so thankfully, we get very clear instructions on what it looks like. We see it in Daniel's life, but we actually have God's word that tells us what it looks like. I don't know if you know this, but we talked about it last week. Jeremiah and Ezekiel are both uh, contemporaries of Daniel. They're God's prophets at the same time. They overlap with Daniel. Jeremiah and Ezekiel are before Daniel and even kind of after. They're, they're, they're operating in the same time. There's overlap there. And so if you read in your Bible... You have what we call the prophets, you have Isaiah, and then you have Jeremiah, and then Lamentations, and then Ezekiel and Daniel, major prophets. Lamentations is Jeremiah seeing what happened to Jerusalem as Babylon came in, and he's lamenting what happened. Just so if you're unaware, that's what Lamentations is. So it's great background for this chapter one of Daniel. 
But if you flip over to Jeremiah, it's page 824 in your Bible. So you just go back. You have Ezekiel, Lamentations, and then Jeremiah, if I'm moving to the left in my Bible. Jeremiah chapter 29 is a letter that Jeremiah writes to the exiles in Babylon. Right? So Jeremiah 29 verse 1 says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So God's prophet, he says, I want you to write this letter to the people that are now in Babylon, and this is what you tell them. So you go, well, how do we live? How do we be faithful in the midst of a crooked generation in a world that is so opposed to God? He tells you. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice, we talked about this last week, but God says that I have sent. There's nothing happening that's outside of God's control. That I allowed this to happen and you're now in Babylon because I allowed it to take place. Verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your son and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send this, send them, declares the Lord. And so what does he say? He says, you go into Babylon and you be for the good of that place. You be good citizens and you love your neighbors. And you build houses and you build gardens and you marry and have kids and you love the people around you. And he says, and you pray for that place where God has placed you. And you love the people that are in front of you. Notice God doesn't say you go into Babylon and you build really high walls around your house and never come out. He says, you love those people. You pray for them. You seek their good. You continue to speak truth. And then he says, there's going to be prophets that come in my name and seek to lead you astray. And he said, don't listen to them. You hold fast to my word and what I've told you. And so God tells us to go and to live in the place where he places us and to love those around us to make much of who God is. And so when you read Daniel, that's exactly what he and his friends do. We don't know exactly when uh, the letter there is written when Daniel would have heard it, but he definitely knew about Jeremiah and his prophecies. Definitely knew what was going on here and the the call of God and what he was saying. And so Daniel and his friends do just that. In verse 8 it says, They resolved that they would not defile themselves with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. But then if you look closely, what happens is they do learn all the things they teach them. They do their best. And they're top of their class. They do everything with excellence. They seek the good of where they're living. But they don't go against the things that God told them not to do. Like the holiness laws. The food laws. In fact, they do in a very respectful way. They say, is it okay if we don't defile ourselves in this way? And they come and they ask with great grace and humility. God has favor on them and he protects them and he takes care of them as they're faithful in the midst of it. 
And they love the people where they are. You get to the end of the first chapter here in verse 17, and it says, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time when the king commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel and his friends as they stood before the king. They were top of the class as they were 10 times better than everyone else. And so when we start to think about what does it look like to live in a hostile world? It's not easy, but it's not complicated. You love God and you love the people around you. You continue to entrust yourself to the sovereign king of the universe and you stay faithful to him. And so we look for the place where we live. I guess the way we could say it is, is we continue to work for its good. We cooperate with the good things that are around us, but without compromise to the things that God told us. And we continue to seek him in everything. We speak the truth and we let God's word stand for his word. And we trust that he will take care of us. And you're going to see that repeat in the book of Daniel. There's going to be times where they come up against it very hard. Their life is on the line. Are we going to trust God? Are we going to trust what the world says? And over and over, the decisions they make here in chapter one kind of set the tone for this whole book. They're going to continue to trust God in everything. And that's our call, to continue to trust God in everything. And so I want to end here just with this thought. When we go against that and we kind of embrace what the culture says, culture wars and angry and it's us against them, we're forgetting the things that God has told us. We're not trusting that the gospel can do the work that God says it will do. But when we continue to entrust ourselves to God, we continue to be gracious and kind even in the midst of opposition. We're putting our trust that God is big enough to do what he says he's going to do. And we're going to trust him always in all things. And so we get to love the people around us even when they're hard to love. Even when they're adamantly opposed to the thing God says. Because that's exactly what God has done for us in Jesus. He loved us when we were unlovely. He continues to pursue us even when we turn our backs on him. And so we are called to do the same thing. And God will protect you in that. And that's what you see all the way through this book. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. That you have come to us to do what we could never do for ourselves. And at the heart of that gospel is the that you love us even through our mess and our rebellion and you continue to pursue us, ultimately laying down your life for us. And so give us the eyes to see the people around us the way that you see us. Give us eyes to see our culture that is running so far away from you the way that you see all things, that we would love people the way that you love us, that you would increase our faith and understanding that your word can do the work, that you are the one that can change hearts, that when we are loving in the midst of opposition, that it shines a beautiful light on who you are and the way that you love us. Help us to see that so clearly right where you've placed us today. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.